governments want to help the rich get richer and make the poor get poorer, which is where we begin the latest episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion and analysis of the news by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and I'm joined by politics editor Jane Cahoon and reporters Corey Schaefer, Eric Isaac, and Courtney Astolfi. Let's start off with the drive to help some rich people get richer, Jane. We learned from Andrew Tobias that some state legislatures and its legislators, in a move that can only be called sleazy, tried to slip in a special tax exemption for people who live in one of Ohio's toniest suburbs, Hunting Valley. Governor Mike DeWine did the decent thing by putting a halt to it. But, Jane, how is it going to work? Well, um, they were going to give a tax break to residents of Hunting Valley, where the um, median home value is $1.3 million. Uh, But they were, uh, the argument for it was that they pay a disproportionate amount to the Orange schools. So they were going to cap the property taxes for people in that village and um, make it based on the number of students that they send to the Orange School District, which is not very many. And um, the school district was going to lose several million dollars as a result of this. With, it was with in, like a month to go before school starts. Right, right, right. They would have to do immediate cuts, they said. And um, this was all done at the last minute during the conference committee process. Uh, no discussion, no debate. And in fact... Uh, the people at the school district found out about it, but they but they weren't told, so they had to spring into action to try to get the governor to veto it. I mean, the people in Hunting Valley have an argument that they pay disproportionate share of the costs, and it, it's not without merit. There is some evidence of that. Um, many of the people who live there, I guess, send their kids to private schools, but they didn't seek any kind of open debate on this. They just kind of snuck off no, to lobbyists I, I, to get it through. Right. There is certainly an argument for it. They say they're, they're, they have an undue tax burden. Um, i guessing that not very many of our listeners feel really sorry for the people in Hunting Valley. It's a very wealthy place. But, um, yes, there is a, an argument for it. But why did they have to keep it a secret if it was such a, um, a good thing? Well, like you said, the district learned of it. They went to the governor. He did the right thing. Has anyone heard from Matt Dolan? He was looking more and more lately, like a statesman in Columbus, working to get some things done. But then he gets involved in something like this, something kind of so counter to good government that it raises questions about whether he should have any kind of future in elected office. Have we heard him? Has he said, this is why I snuck this in and tried to get it past the tax <laughs> Well, he saw it as a legitimate, you know, he, he bought into the argument that people there were being burdened unfairly, that it just wasn't fair. Then why not um, do it out in the open? Then why not do it out in the open? I and don't know that he's that. really addressed that, and I don't know that he's really going to suffer for it either. All right, from the rich almost getting richer to the poor definitely getting poorer, our Washington reporter, Sabrina Eaton, reported this week on a plan to strip food stamps for millions of Americans, including people in Ohio. Who's behind that idea? Well, that's the Trump administration. They've tried to um, take lots of swipes at the food stamp program. They were unsuccessful in getting certain things into the last couple of farm bills to do this. Now they've issued this rule that um, messes with states' uh, flexibility um, on on eligibility requirements, and um, advocates um, 
like the Ohio Association of Food Banks say this is going to be devastating for working uh, low-income families. Marsha Fudge, the local representative, uh, came out swinging at this. The food banks have come out swinging right. because they're the ones that have to pick up the slack. Uh, is there any chance that they'll be successful, or is this something the administration can simply hit a switch and do? Uh, no, there's. I think there's a chance they will be successful. This is uh, just a rule that was put on the Federal Register. They've got a comment period for the public. It's got to go through a process. Congress, uh, which hasn't stood for these changes in the past, could could push back on it, could try to get rid of it. Um, and as we've seen in the past, the Trump administration has backtracked on other issues. So this is far from a done deal. I don't think people should worry right now um, about immediately getting kicked off. All right. It would not be an episode of This Week in the CLE without some talk about the Cuyahoga County Jail. Corey, you had a doozy of a story following up on the arrest a while back of a jail guard accused of selling illegal drugs to inmates. What's the latest on that? So he's still, it's going through the pretrial process. He, this corrections officer is named Stephen Thomas. Um, The you know, the big bombshell that came last week, uh, he had asked for his bond to be lowered so he could, uh, some not lowered, but restrictions lifted on his bond so he could go out and get a job because he's been placed on unpaid leave ever since he got indicted. And um, in, in the response by, by the prosecutors uh, against this motion, um, they basically said, you know, we have evidence and we plan to bring more charges against not only Mr. Thomas, but also other corrections officers that are going to accuse them of being part of a smuggling ring inside the jail that was being run apparently by associates of the Heartless Felons Gang, which is a very notorious violent, dangerous gang that started in prisons, you know, 20 years ago. And but it was guards who were guards doing being, the operation. Yeah, the, 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 the ring is run by associates of the Heartless Felons, and it employs uh, at least Mr. Thomas, apparently. They're saying he was part of this ring, but it sounds like they're going to bring charges against corrections officers and gang members. And it wasn't just drugs, right? They mentioned other contraband. Do you have any idea what it was and what they were, what the prices were? Yeah, so uh, what we've seen in, in public filing so far, uh, Thomas is charged with smuggling in cell phones and vape pens. So, you know, the little, like... Yeah. Yeah, the vape pens. And... Um, according to the filings that I've seen that have been made public so far, the going rate, he said he got $1,500. He did it twice. Um, so 750 bucks a pop for cell phone batteries, vapes. But obviously the prosecution's going to say, you know, he left out the heroin part, so he got <laughs> 750 bucks for heroin, cell phone, and vapes. Wow, it'll be fascinating to see where that goes. Sheriff uh, Cliff Pinckney is ultimately responsible for the jail. Have we heard anything from him about how this could happen? No, so I called uh, the county as soon as I found the filing on Friday and uh, asked them for comment, and they said, you know, we haven't seen this, so, you know, not comment. I just gave another courtesy call yesterday to see where they were, and, um, you know, basically... These are allegations that have been made in a court filing. There have been no charges that have alleged these yet, so I think they're, you know, a little reticent to comment at this point, but they said, you know, we'll, 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 cooperate, we'll cooperate with any 
you know, investigation as it comes on, but they're well, staying silent on this. Actually, Courtney, we've had damn little word from the sheriff on anything of late, and the county council appears to be fed up with his silence. After he brought a lawyer to a recent hearing and refused to answer their questions, they did some strategizing and have now come back with a plan to force answers from the guy. What's their plan? Yeah, so this week, county council issued their first ever subpoena, exercising that authority under the county charter that they have. So next Tuesday, Sheriff Pinckney will come in and he'll be under subpoena and he'll be asked to answer questions about the jail. Is there any penalty they can assess against him if he refuses to talk? Well, county council wouldn't be the one to assess the penalty here. The way um, it's structured is that if they feel that the sheriff isn't answering their questions, they can refer that to the county prosecutor, and then the county prosecutor can decide if he's going to pursue contempt proceedings in court. So then it would go to a judge, there'd be a hearing, the sheriff could argue his case, and then the judge could decide what what penalties to level against the sheriff. All right, there is a long-standing now criminal investigation of the jail. No one has ever said that Cliff Pinckney is a target of that, but it's a criminal investigation, so there is some jeopardy. Does he have a Fifth Amendment right here to say, I'm not going to talk to you because I don't want to have incriminate myself? Yes, so he can he can use his, his right against self-incrimination. He can uh, essentially claim the fifth and, and decline to answer certain questions. But what's going to happen at that point, if county council believes that he should be able to answer that question, given, you know, they don't know his personal potential involvement in the criminal case, but if they think that he's maybe using that Fifth Amendment right, perhaps improperly, they could then refer that could be part of what they refer to the prosecutor's office. And then in the hearing, the judge would decide, A, that was an improper use of the Fifth Amendment, or or no, that's okay. Normally, if a county employee refused to answer questions at the request of the council, they could ask Armin Budish, the county executive, to fire the person because they're not doing what they're required to do as part of their job. But Cliff Binkney retires, what, two days after this scheduled hearing? Yeah, a couple days later. Um, technically, the one of the charter's authors who I spoke with last week said, you know, when he refused to answer those questions last week, the county executive who has the firing power over the sheriff council does not could have fired him for not answering council's questions, but that didn't happen. You know, we talked last week when he didn't answer the questions. We thought we were going to finally get some answers, and you expressed a little bit of frustration saying, you know, we may never know what is in this guy's head. If he takes the fifth or if he somehow doesn't answer and he retires and goes off into the sunset, you were kind of frustrated because you said there would be a lot of questions we may never have answers to. Yeah, I mean, unless this goes to trial and and these facts come out in that venue, I don't know if we ever necessarily hear from him about what he thinks went wrong in the jails and and circumstances there. Even though council members are displeased with Pinckney's silence, they do blame some of the jail's problems on what they view as the weakness of the sheriff's position in the county government. 
Council President Dan Brady thought the solution was returning to an elected sheriff, which our editorial board blasted as a cynical move to return to the days of corrupt government that we had involving people like Gerald McFall and Jimmy DeMora. But Brady's more thoughtful colleagues have come up with a different plan to put before the voters that would not return to an elected sheriff. What do they want to do? So this plan that will go before voters in fall, and and voters will decide if this is what they want to do, um, it would keep the sheriff, like you said, in an appointed position, but it would like build in more oversight for counsel over that position and put some safeguard and and autonomy in place. So the, the... the proposal would do a handful of things. One, it would stagger the sheriff's term with that of the county executive, so they're not lining up one for one. Um, council members would gain the ability to fire the sheriff, and they and a supermajority of council would be required to sign off on, say, an executive's decision to remove them. So council has a say in the removal process there. It would also grant the sheriff explicit authority to make hiring and firing decisions of his own staff. So that's been a big question amongst all of this. And this grants him explicit authority to decide who stays, who goes. Council would sign off on the appointment or reappointment of sheriff every four years. Right now, if it's a reappointment, council doesn't. Um, And it would also boost the standards, um, education and training requirements for the sheriff, like specific to to jail. Well, the sheriff might be silent, but a bunch of people who are anything but silent this week are advocates for immigrants who staged a protest downtown to highlight what they say are deplorable practices of ICE agents, including the detaining of someone who was in this country uh, legally. Eric, it felt like a lot was going on with regard to immigration questions in Northeast Ohio. How about sorting it out for us? Right. Um, I see one of the things you mentioned was actually ICE stopping uh, two people, actually, in Painesville, uh, who both said they are in the country legally, one a permanent resident, one a U.S. citizen. Uh, interestingly enough, though, the uh, some of the rancor and some of the frustration from a lot of the immigrant community, particularly Hispanics, uh, really ramped up in a in a public way on Monday when they held a protest outside the free stamp in um, or right around the free stamp in downtown Cleveland. Uh, The significance was not lost on me, but about 100 people showed up pretty much saying enough is enough they feel like they're targeted these immigrants feel like they're being targeted by ice unfairly some may not be in the country legally but they've also been trying to take steps to rectify that and also at the same time are not committing crimes and are really trying to be a part of the community instead they think ice is targeting them unfairly and really letting some of the people who they should be going after just roam free you know the immigration issue throughout much of the trump administration has had had people who are involved in it on edge, but but suddenly, uh, in Northeast Ohio particularly, we seem to be on high alert. Maybe it's because for the past two weekends, the Trump administration made it sound like they're going to be rounding people up. But but it does. I mean, last Friday, word went out there was a raid going on in Lake County. We mobilized a, a team here. It turned out to be a false alarm. What do you think is is causing that kind of level of alert? I think it's frankly the news cycle and every one of us who keeps writing about it. I'm not saying any reporter should ever not cover this, but uh, it's not like people live in a bubble. Um, As you pointed out, there has been a lot of news going on about the Trump administration and ICE's ICE's plans to do large roundups in 10 major cities uh, and really target a lot of people who have been here for a while. 
those, as you said, did not happen, and I, none of the news reports I saw said any of those were actually supposed to happen in Cleveland. But still, um, people who are maybe not in this country legally uh, and their advocates see that, it already puts fear, and it really just takes one or two arrests um, for you know that to play to basically turn into a game of telephone. One arrest turns into two, turns into eight, turns on to six, turns into sixteen, and all of a sudden we have a full blown raid that's happening that didn't turn out to be true. Speaking of the Trump administration, Donald Trump is running for president again next year. Uh, it's very early to be thinking about polling, and we actually have problems with the reliability of polling in the last election cycles. But we do have a Quinnipiac poll this week on the presidential race. It is mildly interesting. Jane, why is that? Well, it's interesting because uh, former Vice President Joe Biden is leading <clears throat> Donald Trump by eight percentage points, the same uh, margin that Donald Trump won the state by in 2016. And it's a little bit more than uh, Sherrod Brown just won yes. the Senate re-election last November. He won by 7%. Correct, correct. So uh, you could argue it's a, sing a signal that Ohio is still a battleground state. However, I would caution not to um, put too much into this because, as you said, it's way early and in Ohio, the Republican Party is very strong, organized, efficient. Um, they know how to get their candidates elected, as they proved in 2018, which was largely a Democratic year. Even the, um, the lesser-known candidates, how they fared, where it was a dead heat, was interesting. Because Donald Trump is known. He did win the state big. And you have all these no-names that people haven't even sorted out yet pretty much being in a dead heat with them. Right, right. Um, the uh, Pete Buttigieg, I believe, and um, Warren, Sanders, Kamala Harris, um, they were all in statistical ties with the president. You know, it's, we've been wondering, what will those, those Obama voters who became Trump voters, where are they going to be? This is an early indication, and really the reliability is questionable. <laughs> but it was an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, so... Um, it just could be, you know, Biden is so well-known. Who knows? All right, let's close it out with some more talk about incompetent government. Courtney, the inspector general for Cuyahoga County, took a deep look at how the county screwed up with a $300,000 grant that it must now pay back. What was the grant for, and what were the mistakes the county made in dealing with it? So this grant was to upgrade the county's fingerprint system. This is an important piece of technology that the medical examiner uses. It's used in the county jails. And the one that Cuyahoga County currently has is super out of date. So this was an important upgrade. The county got this grant money and 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 bought two servers that were to be used for the fingerprint system. However, at the same time, they bought two other servers when they went to install it in their setup, um, they put the grant servers in and hooked that up to the count, the rest of the county system. And then the two other servers just sat on a shelf unused for like three years. And they've never been used. No. So, so we'll see them in surplus equipment sales someday, brand new, never been used in box. Well, the county could use them, so they're there, but it defeats the whole point yeah, of why we got them. Now it's dated technology, right? <laughs> it's three years old. Yeah, it, 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 what, what the inspector general and the internal auditor found in their report is that the IT department didn't track the serial number, so they didn't even like write down on a piece of paper which was which, um, but that was just one of of the problems that the independent review found. All right. So, so 
If you look back over the past year, year and a half, we have seen one never-ceasing list of incompetent acts by county government. Uh, there was some hope that when Armin Budish named former county prosecutor Bill Mason be its chief of staff, that that this would finally come to an end, that Bill Mason would get things under control. Are you seeing evidence of that yet? What what is Mason in place? Has he started? Where do we stand? Yeah, he's a couple weeks into the job. He um, It sounds like he's starting to make little changes. Nothing we can report yet, but things are starting to come out. It sounds like he's kind of putting his hand on the wheel and starting to guide things. What are you going to do if he gets things under control? What will you write about when when there's no longer a long list of incompetent acts <laughs> to follow? I'll take a deep breath and enjoy a little bit of relaxation after a crazy year. All right. Coming up in a moment, the city of Bedford stops enforcing a law that critics said targeted African Americans. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Lakewood Together, powered by Cleveland.com, is an exciting new approach to covering the vibrant city of Lakewood. Receive daily updates on businesses, elections, construction projects, and more. I'm Cleveland.com's Emily Bamforth, and I cut through the chatter to bring you the most relevant information about your town, answering your questions or investigating the online buzz. The most important part of Lakewood Together is that we're starting a conversation about what you want to talk about. All you have to do is text back. This week in the CLE, I'm Chris Quinn with Eric Heisig, Jane Cahoon, and in this segment, reporter Mary Kilpatrick and special projects editor and rockthelake.com coordinator Laura Johnston. Many cities have laws on the books that seek to curtail what they see as nuisance calls to police by residents. With tight budgets, cities want to make sure that their police are called for legitimate reasons. But the city of Bedford's nuisance law is a good bit more drastic than most, and critics say it has often been used against African Americans. Eric, this law has been in the crosshairs of critics for a while. Why is that? When we say critics, we're talking about the ACLU of Ohio. It's basically been in the crosshairs because the law... Why don't we just start with what the law is? It basically allows... Uh, officials to designate somebody a nuisance after a law is alleged to have been broken two times. The problem with that law, according to critics, is it does not differentiate between the offender and the complainant. So a, a lot of times, for example, if a, uh, a female lives in a housing, in, in an apartment, uh, she gets battered by a spouse, uh, domestic violence. Uh, she's basically the one that is the target of this law, not the person who is alleged to have broken the if, law. If she's made, if she makes a call twice to say, my boyfriend beat the hell out of me, she becomes the nuisance. Right, not the boyfriend. Um, and, you know, the ACLU ended up suing about this earlier this year, saying this really unfairly prejudices a lot of people uh, in these type of housing, these, these apartments, the majority of which in the city of Bedford are African-American, and a large portion of those are women. What does the city of Bedford say about this? The, the city of Bedford has been kind of mum about this. They, they've, you know, they've tried to defend themselves from the lawsuit. It's only a few months out. Not much has happened, though. The news this week is that they agreed, while this lawsuit is pending, not to enforce this law um, during the litigation. Why do you think they agreed to if they think that the law is legitimate? I, you know, I, I'm. They really haven't said whether or not they think it's legitimate or not. You know, there have been stories in the past where former mayors of the city of Bedford talked about why this was a uh, a necessity, but at the same time, usually something like a preliminary injunction or a temporary restraining order, 
um, if a judge does it, it basically they ha- there is a finding that there needs to be a finding that there is a likelihood of success on the merits of the case. So there is a little bit of nuance in here in saying that you know they're defending it. They say it's ne- it needs to be on the books at this point. They may be saying, "Look, these plaintiffs have a pretty strong case." And the ACLU, they they won't be satisfied with non-enforcement. They want the the law gone. They they want the law gone. They want these kinds of laws to be declared unconstitutional. The ACLU uh, ended up citing a report in its uh, lawsuit in February uh, from Cleveland State University that I believe it said uh, twenty. Uh, 20 communities in, I believe, Cuyahoga County have these types of law on the b- laws and on the books. Some would say the real nuisance in this state is the efforts of legislators to force all of us to bail out the nuclear energy industry. First Energy Solutions was thwarted repeatedly over the past few years in its efforts to take more of our money to prop up their expensive nuclear plants. But this week, they finally persuaded legislators and Governor Mike DeWine to line their pockets with our money. How will that work? Well, uh, in our electric bills, uh, we're going to see anywhere from like 85 cents a month to up to about $2,400 for big industrial users. Um, And uh, the First Energy Solutions nuclear plants will get $150 million a year from this. There's maybe $20 million for existing solar projects. And um, yeah, so it finally passed. There was a there was a hope at one point that there would be a more significant subsidy in this bill for green energy and 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 things that look forward. Um, in the end, they actually went with even <laughs> older school energy. What was that part? Well, uh, I guess you could argue that the the original bill in the House completely did away with our. Um, clean energy mandates, the renewables and the energy efficiency mandates for which um, ratepayers were paying. So the the argument in favor of this legislation is that uh, the ratepayers um, will save money ultimately. Um, but uh, the compromise with the Senate, they did keep the mandates, but they lowered the bar so much um, that they're effectively gutted. Yeah, but I'm talking about the subsidy for another form of old-style energy. Oh, that one. So we have a subsidy for coal plants in Ohio and Indiana uh, owned by the Ohio Valley Electric Corporation, uh, and that's going to cost about a buck fifty a month. Should point out that the the first energy <clears throat> solutions argument for this is that yes, today energy is cheap because we have this bountiful natural gas. But if the day comes when that is being exported or the demand is higher and the price goes up, right now with nuclear plants you have a hedge against that. It's more expensive now, but ultimately could be cheaper unless those plants get closed down. So they think ratepayers should provide some insurance for the future by bailing them out now. Quite a few people uh, feel otherwise. Um, and ultimately, the legislature, Governor Mike DeWine, went in with the nuclear <laughs> I think it, uh, you know, I'm just guessing here, but I think it took about 10 seconds for that bill to land on his desk before he signed it. This might not be over, as your team reported uh, earlier this week. There might be an effort afoot to stop it. Correct. Uh, Some business and um, environmental interests are teaming up to push for a statewide referendum on this. Um, They've already filed paperwork and they're getting underway. 
Uh, who knows how successful they will be given all the money that's been poured into this issue. You've got to believe it's going to be an uphill battle. Eric, we talked last week about the big stroke lessons to be found in a database that was recently released showing where the drug makers distributed opioids throughout the nation in Ohio. You said at the time you were working on mashing that massive database into lessons for the state. You published a searchable database this week. What did you learn from it? Uh, I learned that Rich Exner is one of the best people to work with in this newsroom, especially when it comes to data. Uh, So that was the first lesson I learned. We love Rich. Yeah, and the second lesson I learned, um, and I don't know if it's a lesson or if it's just an interesting aside, but uh, we are so focused, really. We we live in Cuyahoga County. We work in Cuyahoga County. I think a lot of us in the newsroom are very focused on Cuyahoga County because that's what we cover. At the same time, looking at the map, looking at the data we made, or we, we sorted out, it really shows that Cuyahoga County did not have nearly the level of prescription painkillers uh, between 2006 and 2012 when this data is from, as we see in other parts of the state, especially in that southern and southeast Ohio corridor. We should point out the data does end in 2012, and northeast Ohio did see more problems with opioids in the following years. Right, right. Um, and, and it seems like at least in in this segment of the uh, data that we have, it really was more of a rural thing than it was an urban thing, which it later did become, as you rightly pointed out. You also are looking at uh, uh, pharmacies that distributed these opioids. That's part of the database. I know that uh, you're still doing analysis on that, but what are your early takes on what you're seeing? So what I ended up doing was actually breaking down the pharmacies uh, and the shipments they received during that seven-year period uh, in a couple of ways. Um, One, you know, after all said and done, uh, the data we have showed that about 3.7 billion pills uh, were sent to the state of Ohio between 2006 and 2012. The pharmacy portion of that is about $2.24 billion, so still a massive portion of that. Others went to hospitals, teaching institutions, and physicians, and other various places. Of that $2.4 billion, about two-thirds of that really came from some of the major pharmacies that you think of when you think of a chain pharmacy. We're talking your Walgreens, your CVS, your Rite Aid. Um, and, and they really do make up the lion's share of that amount you'll see in the state of Ohio. You break that down even further, though, you're going to look at, uh, you can look at basically these pharmacies in rural areas in the state of Ohio that were seeing large shipments, um, whereas they may have 300, 400 people in that zip code. One that comes to mind is a little village in Athens County called Trimble. Uh, I think the population is about 343 people, had about 975,000 pills sent to that Kroger in a uh, seven-year period break that down that's about 405 pills a person for every year wow that's a lot all right well we'll look forward to seeing that report thank you thank you in recent years finally northeast ohio has embraced lake erie for the unique jewel that it is making it a much more popular spot for recreation with the use of the lake though comes more attention to what ails it and one of the biggest problems it faces is plastics and trash the Trump administration has just announced it will provide $2 million in grants for dealing with lake trash. 
Mary, exactly how will that money be spent and who will get it? So the money will help clear trash and debris along the Great Lakes beaches, shorelines, harbors, and rivers. The money will also support trash and litter prevention efforts in the Great Lakes, as well as educational projects. Uh, the money could go to nonprofits. It could go to local and state governments. Uh, you know, it's only $2 million, and it's hard to say how far that money will go. The EPA estimates the grant program could pay for up to 12 projects or 12 grants, potentially enough to support two large projects and up to 10 smaller projects. The lake has a bigger immediate problem that we often discuss with algae. Everybody remembers when Toledo was without water. We know what we have to do with that. We have to curtail phosphorus and work with the farmers. Trash is a different matter. It's hard to to get a feel for how big an issue this is and how much plastic is in the lake. How do we figure out the overall danger? Laura? So I don't think we really know um, how big of a problem it is, but people are starting to study it now. And I talked to a professor at Loyola University Chicago, and they've been um, looking at fish, and the majority of fish that they look at have plastic pieces in them. Now, he doesn't think that they stay that long in there, but the majority of fish at this point have some kind of microplastic, even if it's something as small as a fiber from a fleece that was in your washing machine. So is that what we're talking about, the cleanup? It's, it involves almost microscopic plastic? Well, it could or be, it- or it could be the bo- mylar balloons that are washing up on a beach. I mean, that's all trash. We're talking 22 million pounds of plastic dumped in the Great Lakes every year. And, um, it's- and where, and, and just where does it come from? I mean, are, are great numbers of people going down to the lake with bucketfuls of plastic? And no, the majority of it, the vast majority is on a street that gets washed into the lake when it rains because we all have these storm sewers and anything that's in a street, it gets washed into the storm sewer and goes out into the lake and then washes back up on the beaches. So if I go to Walgreens to get my opioids that I just <laughs> talked about and I throw the bag on the street, that's washing into the lake. Yes, yes. And it, plastic doesn't biodegrade like paper does. So it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. So like one plastic cup from McDonald's that gets washed in could end up as literally thousands of pieces of plastic. So Mary, you said there's no way of telling how far two million goes, but do we have any idea of the total degree of what's needed? I mean, with the tons of plastic Laura's talking about, it sounds like $2 million is, I'll say, a drop in the bucket. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, um, as, as Laura and I were discussing earlier, there's really no way to know how much money is needed to solve this problem. I mean, I think the people I've talked to are are grateful that they're, the Trump administration is actually looking at this and saying this is a problem. Um, one interesting take I had on this was that trash is not a political issue right now. Like, it's very obvious we have trash. We need to figure out how to take care of it. And it's so visible. Unlike climate change, you don't have people arguing whether we have a trash problem. Now, that could change at some point. But I also have people telling me, you know, this money, which is $2 million out of $300 million of Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which has existed for years and the Trump administration keeps trying to cut. But they... They said they're not cutting it this okay. year. So Yay. they have tried to cut it, but they <laughs> but they're, dis- not. Right. they're not, but which so is why we have this money. Out. It's not additional money. It's just carving out um, that this is like a shiny object. So we can say, look what the Trump administration is doing. Well, then we keep, you know, giving more money to nuclear and coal plants and, you know, keep but, manufacturing but, plastic. But ever since this story broke, I keep following. I mean, are we going to see an army of people down there with little trash pickers? There are armies so of people this down is, there. But this is for all of the Great Lakes. This is. $2 million for all of the Great Lakes. So what we need to keep in mind is this is not just for Lake Erie. There are organizations 
all over the Great Lakes region that are going to be vying for this money. Mm-hmm. So, but can it be more of an awareness thing to get people it, it to stop putting be. plastic it's, on the street? We don't know what it could be. Education, it could be research, it could be data collection. So, in 2018, the Alliance for the Great Lakes, which is across all five lakes, had 14,300 volunteers that picked up 35,000 pounds of trash. So, thinking we're talking, we're putting in 22 million. We're picking out 35,000. So, Laura, are you going to put in for a grant for your favorite <laughs> for your favorite variety so of beach trash, the beach glass? Rock the Lake is going to oh, take this yeah. on. You know, um, you're a big fan of beach glass, which you know is trash. So it is see. trash. It's trash people want. It's it's you know it's <laughs> I don't treasure, want it. Tr- it's treasure trash. Yeah, I don't want it either. Jane, we talked about a possible referendum on the nuclear bailouts, but I don't want to miss talking about a more likely referendum for the ballot, one that would require background checks for all gun sales in Ohio, including those at gun shows. Who's behind that and where does it stand? Uh, The group Ohioans for Gun Safety uh, cleared a hurdle this week. they got the ballot board to sign off on their the fact that this is a single issue. They can now go ahead and collect the signatures. The next step would be getting it. Um, when Once they collect those signatures, it'll go before the legislature. The legislature will decide to act on it or not. If they do not, then they will have another round of signature gathering to try to make the ballot in 2020 or 2021. If this goes to the ballot, unlike unlike some previous uh, attempts at, at this kind of thing, it's not a constitutional amendment. It's a statute. So conceivably, voters could go approve this overwhelmingly, and the legislature, which has been very pro-gun, could just abolish it, right, by another statute. Well, that's uh, that scenario could take place. Um, you know, I, I think that... Um, if voters do overwhelmingly approve it, and there's lots of um, evidence that people are in favor of background checks, this isn't, you know, hardcore gun control legislation, um, that that means something to the legislature. I mean, case in point, this is why we have medical marijuana. A lot of people in the legislature did not want that, but they came to the conclusion that the public did, and so they passed that. Or you could argue to head off the legalization of marijuana, they passed the most limiting medical <laughs> marijuana bill you could have and then and then worked at the speed of molasses in January to implement it. Um, uh, there is, I mean, yes, you're right, that the will of the voter would affect them. But up to now, they've largely been affected by the dollars of the gun lobby. It would be an interesting battle there, I think, because you've got to expect that the gun lobby would immediately be working to either get rid of this law or weaken it somehow. Right. And they have uh, a lot of uh, friendly friendly faces in the legislature, a lot of very ardent Second Amendment people, and it would be an easy sell for them. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to talk about Amazon expanding yet again in Northeast Ohio. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Trying to cut through the noise and stay up to date on news that's important in Northeast Ohio can be challenging. We have a small solution, and it's free. It's our weekday newsletter, The Wake Up, which arrives in your email first thing in the morning, meaning you can start your day fully up to date. Join tens of thousands of others who use The Wake Up to be in the know. Sign up at cleveland.com newsletters. 
It's This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with criminal justice editor Chris Warnowski and reporters Robin Goist and Evan McDonald. Robin, it's your first appearance on the podcast, so welcome. Thank you. You had a story this week that closed the book on what will become of the Rolling Acres Mall, and it's an Amazon.com answer. So what's happening? Right. So it's going to be one of those big fulfillment centers, just like we have in North Randall and Euclid. Um, It's going to be more than 700,000 square feet. um, And uh, Amazon also announced that they're building one in Rossford, up near Toledo. Between the two fulfillment centers, they're going to employ 2,500 employees full-time with um, 100... 1,500 of those being in Akron. So are elected leaders happy about this? Amazon is not a high-paying employer, doesn't have what you would call a skilled workforce. Were the leaders there looking to get something in there that might be more of a higher tech or require a more educated workforce? Well, elected leaders are definitely excited about this. They've been working on it for more than a year. Um, The city, the county, um, everyone is really excited to get these jobs there. Um, But like you said, we've looked at other fulfillment centers across the country, really high turnover, and these are really physically demanding jobs working in these warehouses. So, um, you know, the $15 an hour is really great. Benefits are really great. Um, But like you said, there is an issue perhaps with the quality of the jobs there. There was a time not long ago when Amazon had no presence in Ohio at all because it did not collect and remit sales taxes to Ohio. The state finally persuaded Amazon to start collecting those taxes, which opened the state up for Amazon facilities. And we now have a bunch. I mean, this is becoming one of our our biggest employers. But as people look to the future, they're hoping Ohio becomes more of a tech center. And this is really going in the opposite direction. This is much more of the Walmarts and and it's it's almost like Amazon is replacing the brick and mortar retail with now more brick and mortar retail. Chris, I I think one of the things that these elected officials aren't considering or even thinking about really is the fact that Amazon is also a leader in trying to automate its warehouses. So these great fifteen dollar an hour jobs that are being done by people who probably lost. 25 to $35 an hour jobs when factories close down or when auto plants shut down, you know, these jobs aren't going to exist in 10 years. And so whatever benefit the community is getting out of this, they're not going to be seeing it once Amazon figures out how to take the human out of their business model. Yeah, the warehouse will still be there. It won't be abandoned like a, a, a Walmart that's no longer in operation. But you're right, the income taxes and all of that will disappear. So what is the economic value? I guess the property taxes, um, but it doesn't lead to the workforce. Have we answered whether they, I mean, are they are they giving them very generous property tax benefits for doing this? So, you know, I mean, they're, they're getting a deal cut on that end too, right? Robin? Yes, absolutely. Um, over the years, that was part of the deal. It's looking like... Um, uh, it's they're just following the same formula basically that they've fallen fallen uh, with all of the other facilities in Ohio, which this is the ones in Akron and Rossford are the seventh and eighth in the state. And uh, to the point of automation, these are robotic, quote unquote, state of the art facilities. So if you look at video footage of what these warehouses look like across the country, there's already a lot of automation. The workers work with Kindles in their hand to accomplish their tasks, and so um, the technology aspect is only going to increase going forward. Okay. Chris, you handled a story by reporter Adam Faris this week that was odd for all sorts of reasons, including the basic news. It's about the departure of the head person at the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Detention Center. So let's start with the hard news of what happened. So apparently the new uh, head of the Juvenile Detention Center who 
replaces somebody who had only been there one year, uh, spent five whole hours on the job and said, I'm out. And, and, and it's, it's on its face. That is like absurd, but there is the letter that came out from the, the, the administrative judge, the juvenile court system, Kristen Sweeney, Kristen Sweeney is equally absurd. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, do you, I mean, do you agree with me on this? Yeah, no, I mean, I, it was when we saw the letter last night before we could confirm it, we thought it might be a scam. It yeah. was like, this is so over the top. She's talking about the scientist that discovered that ulcers are caused by bacteria in the same breath that she's talking Vincent Van Gogh. And this is all by way of announcing to her colleagues that this guy decided after five hours, this isn't for me. Yeah. I like it, it's there was a legitimate debate over the legitimacy of this letter that we've received anonymously. Somebody just sent it to us and 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 part of you know part of the wording of it was is this real and and it's that's how on its face insane it seemed to get something like this Evan, you recently covered the East Cleveland trial of a Cleveland police supervisor involved in the infamous one hundred and thirty seven shots case involving many Cleveland police officers. So how about for one last time, remind us what this case was about before we get into the details of the trial. So these charges date back to the November 29th, 2012 chase, where more than 60 police cars were involved in chasing Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams' car over 22 miles from the Justice Center in Cleveland to an East Cleveland middle school, and 13 officers fired 137 shots, killing them. Well, let's set the stage. The officers were in a circle around the car, shooting at the car. It's a miracle that in the crossfire, nobody, none of the officers got hit. Yes. And that led to only one officer being charged in the actual shooting. Michael Brelo was acquitted in 2015 of voluntary manslaughter charges. But that incident really thrust Cleveland into the forefront of the national conversation about police use of force. So who was accused in this trial? Why was it in East Cleveland? And what was the verdict? So in this trial, Sergeant Patricia Coleman was charged with dereliction of duty. She was among five supervisors who were charged with that. And she was actually not involved in the shooting in any way. She was a passenger in one of the police cruisers during the chase. She wasn't even at the shooting scene when it happened. Their their car got left behind when... Timothy Russell pulled into an East Cleveland parking lot briefly. So what they were trying to prove for a dereliction of duty was that some of her subordinates in the vice unit committed traffic violations during that chase and that she is responsible for those traffic violations as their supervisor. All right. This and ultimately she was acquitted. Yes, she was acquitted on a jury acquitted her on Friday. The um, This trial, Chris, seemed like it was off the rails from the start. No sooner had it started, actually, that you flagged me because we had to get lawyers involved. Why did we do that? Oh, uh, because the uh, East Cleveland Municipal Court put guards up at the door and said that they weren't going to allow the public to view the jury selection process, which is, you know, obviously an affront to the open courts laws here you know these are public proceedings and you know we had a right to be there just as anybody else did and they said they weren't going to allow the public in because they didn't want to taint the jury pool which you know we all know is not legal (laughs) and 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 we did get in i i did think evan that throughout this trial 
there were decisions that were made that if if there were a conviction would have been immediate grounds for appeal, including excluding the public from jury selection right off the bat. The the so and in some ways it probably saves the taxpayers a boatload of money that she was acquitted because we don't have to go through rounds of appeals. Right. There were some controversial moments. At one point the defense attorney objected when East Cleveland's law director Willa Hemmons briefly played another officer's Garrity statement, which is his statement to internal investigators. Which is not to be used in criminal prosecutions any any way possible, right? Yes. So she was arguing that she believed since that officer was not on trial and it was not his trial, she could use it. But, of course, the defense strenuously objected to that. And there was also a moment where the East Cleveland police officer who signed the actual complaint against Sergeant Coleman testified that a Cuyahoga County prosecutor had basically told him to sign it when the case got transferred from Cuyahoga County Court to East Cleveland Court. And the again, the defense said that the whole complaint should be ruled invalid, that the case should be dismissed, but the judge let that go to a jury. So yeah, and the jury really probably spared us a lot of of difficulty and money over the next years by just ending it from 137 shots to 100 flats. A whole lot happened on a Cleveland. A whole lot of tires were lost on a Cleveland highway one afternoon this week. What happened there? So about 3.30 on Tuesday, 3.30 p.m., a semi was driving up I-77 near the ramp to 480, and it overturned and spilled a bunch of metal shards all over the highway. So about 100 different cars had flat tires, and they had to close down the highway for about four hours as uh, crews worked to clean all these shards up. So that was right in the middle of rush hour, snarled everything. So did we have a, a whole army of tow trucks coming up there to take these cars away? Or were, were most people just pulling out their spares and changing them? And 100 people with flat tires, that's kind of an interesting scene. Most people apparently were just pulling over and changing their own spares. So actually, many of them, the police didn't actually speak to at the scene, so they ended up putting out something, asking everyone to report the damage so they could get a full police report on this. And then these people might have a claim against the uh, the driver of that truck or the company that owned the truck for causing all this damage? Yes, yes. That driver was cited for not... Well, he's a driver, first of all, for Nat Services, a Cleveland trucking company, and he was cited for not securing that load of metal shards and also for some commercial driver's citations for load violations. All right. Robin, you had another story of note, the trading of land for tuition at Stark State University. How does that work? Right. So this is the um, first tuition remission program for City of Akron employees. And it actually has to do with uh, Stark State College's CDL, the Commercial Driver's License Program. Uh, Right now, they don't have a training facility. They just sort of work out of a parking lot area in their North Canton campus. Um, And Stark State has been increasing their presence in the Akron area over the last few years. And um, along with the City of Akron, decided to buy a property on Akron's south side. It's actually in a joint economic uh, development district with Springfield Township. 
and it's about six acres. And instead of paying the about $25,000 that it's valued at per year, they're going to give free tuition to City of Akron employees and their beneficiaries for any class. It doesn't have to be a CDL class in any program at Stark State, as long as there's an open seat in the class. And so... Um, is that for a time, a limited time, or is it just going forward? The city says in perpetuity, as long as they're you know in a good relationship with Stark State. That's a great deal. Yeah, and they're hoping to expand it uh, to be, you know, maybe not even just the open seat program, to be a little bit more in-depth. So, Chris? Oh, I was just wondering, in these CDL classes, do they teach the drivers how to properly secure their truck loads? <laughs> I would it? hope so. <laughs> no flat tires in Akron. Is this something that um, the mayor of Akron helped negotiate? I mean, he's been doing a lot of kind of innovative things down there. Is this one of his programs? Yes, this unique compensation agreement was his suggestion. And so uh, I know there's about 1,800 Akron employees. Don't know how many, including the beneficiaries, but a lot of people are going to be able to further their education because of this. Yeah, he's really become one of the most dynamic people in Northeast Ohio these days. We'll be back in a moment to talk about pasta sauce. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Everyone has their favorite writer at Cleveland.com, and now you can get a bit closer to them through Cleveland.com's Project Text. Each weekday, they will send you a text message about what they are thinking as they go about their reporting. It's a unique way of engaging with Mary Kay Cabot as she covers the Browns, Doug Maurice as he thinks about Ohio State University, Corey Schaefer as he shares insights about the Justice Center, and many more. There's a small fee, which we use to support our journalism. Check it out at cleveland.com slash project text. We're back for the final segment of this episode on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm with editor Kristen Davis and reporters Yadi Rodriguez, Troy Smith, and Mark Bona. Kristen and Yadi, let's start with you and pasta. The most popular piece of content on our site this week, by far, was the ranking done by your team on pasta sauces. How many sauces did you sample? What were your top five? Um, We sampled a total of 174 different sauces. Um, Our top five, the uh, number one was Classico's Italian Sausage with Peppers and Onions, um, followed by Bertoli's Rustic uh, Cut Sweet Peppers, Jar Goods Classic Spicy, Carfagna's original family recipe, and fifth was the Mazetta's Italian plum tomato. So whenever you talk about pasta sauce, you get into the debate about homemade versus the stuff in the jar. And, you know, usually what wins that debate is homemade. It's got that fresh tomato aroma, and and it's strong. So did any of those that you tasted compete with homemade from raw ingredients, pasta sauce? I mean, I think that nothing's going to really compare to homemade. Um, but there were some that came pretty close, and in our notes we actually put tastes like homemade. Um, I think the ones that really stood out were the ones that had um, chunkier pieces in it. You could see the vegetables. Um, you could taste it. Um, the different flavors, the different ingredients, and when you open the jar, you could actually smell. You could smell the tomato. You could smell it. Yeah. So, um, you know, those things kind of uh, played into. So you get that from the best. <laughs> what did you get from the worst? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of them were really, really bad. It was literally like. I, I think I put some comments that it was like licking the inside of a tin can. Um, 
some of them were just horrible. Um, you don't always get what you pay for. Um, our top pick was only two dollars and thirty nine cents, and in the top ten was one from Walmart. And in right? in the A top Walmart 10, brand, yeah. yes. And so, um, our out of the hundred and seventy four, the price range was eighty five cents to twelve ninety nine. Right. Um, so, and, and let's give people a real a, a real taste of what went into this. This wasn't something you did quickly. I mean, it feels like you've been tasting these things forever because once you tasted them, you'd share it with the staff, and we go back a long way. People have been tasting this. So, so how did you go about this? How did you make sure that your palate was fresh? Uh, for 174 tastings of pasta sauce. Well, like you said, it was a long process. Um, we started shopping at the end of January. And so six months, it, we didn't try 100 sauces in a day. Um, you know, we averaged maybe five to 10 in a, in a day. Um, and we're, we weren't sampling the, the whole jar. I mean, you have a couple of pieces, you try it. Um, and you use the same pasta with it every and time. And we use the same pasta every time, you know, the whole way through. And we took very good notes. We had a, a rating system, you know, we referred to our notes. All right, so so as you're doing this and you're, you taste all 174, did you come to a point where you said, these are my top five, I want to taste these together so I can pick which I, ones are the best? Yeah, and I think along the way you always have the few that stand out and you remember um, and so, you know, we starred those on our notes. We, we knew we went back and we retried them. And, you know, like everything else, we sat back and what are your tops? What are my tops? Let's compare. What do we have in common? And, and go from there. And remember that we were looking at this on the consumer end. You go into the grocery store and you don't realize how many different varieties of sauce there are. And so we do now, you know, yeah. you do now. And we're just trying as an average consumer go in there. And like I said, it's not necessarily the most expensive sauce. That's the best out there. Yeah, I think it's, you know, people have been talking about the rankings. And one thing that's uh, neat about it is you can kind of look at it and tailor it to you. So number one was the Italian sausage and peppers. Maybe you're vegetarian or you don't really like sausage. And so it's it's kind of going through and maybe the you're into vodka sauce. So you check out, like, what the top-rated vodka sauce was. And so uh, I think, you know, hopefully a lot of people are interested and want to uh, experiment know. and try we know people are interested. Yes. This thing lit up the charts. I couldn't believe how many people were reading this and and reading it all the way through. I mean, this thing was very sticky. Are you guys um, going to update this as new sauces come out? No. <laughs> <laughs> They're never going to taste pasta sauce again. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. There are two um, that kind of really stood out as well. Um, Our Lady of Mont Carmel, which is a local, and Stancados is also a local. Um, there are some good sauces to check out. So we're hoping that this at least uh, gives people um, a chance to try out something new that they haven't and um, give some love to local uh, pasta makers out there. Very cool. Troy, you reported this week that we have another major movie being filmed in Cleveland by the guys who you now can argue just this week are the most successful movie makers on the planet. What's the movie that's coming? Who's making it? And why do I say they are the most successful on the planet? Well, you know, it was a big weekend for the Russo brothers, big week uh, where they surpassed uh, Avengers, uh, Endgame surpassed Avatar as the highest grossing film of all time. So the Cleveland... Bread Russo brothers, Joe and Anthony, they have the highest grossing film of all time. 
and now they're bringing their next project, uh, or you know, the next after their next, uh, starring Tom Holland, who plays Spider-Man in the MCU. It's called Cherry, and they're going to film it in Cleveland. It's set in Cleveland, and Tom Holland, who looks like he's 12 years old, he'll be playing uh, a, a guy in the army who comes home, gets addicted to opioids, and starts robbing banks to pay for his habit. So it's kind of a darker role for him, but the Russo brothers seem excited about it. It's a smaller budget movie. It is a smaller movie. They're working on another film. I think might be filming in New York uh, with Chad uh, Chadwick Boseman, who plays Black Panther. So they're still they're not in the MCU anymore, but they're still bringing the MCU guys to so, their films. Do you think this will have more of the the look and flavor of the Collinwood movie that they? Made yeah, I think so. Um, but they're big time now. They've got a big production company in Asia. Uh, they're working on a lot of projects, some TV shows. So they really have entered the realm. If you look at just total gross per director, they're now in you know the top fifteen or whatnot uh, with the George Lucases, with the Steven Spielbergs, just over a total career. And they haven't been doing it in terms of blockbuster films nearly as long. So is this the fourth movie then they'll make in Cleveland? If you include the two Marvel movies, Collinwood, and now this, or is there more even? Uh, I think that's it. Um, but it seems like they want to bring more projects. This has been in the works with the uh, Film Commission since April. The Russo brothers talked about wanting to bring the film here, and there's obviously been some debate about the tax credit, and they were waiting on that. So I think this is a good sign that they're bringing this film here in October that maybe things are going to go the positive way with the tax credit. You're right. This announcement comes just after the state finally passed the budget yeah. that did include the tax credit, which there was a battle to take it out. And now it was at it's at 40. They're trying to push it even further now to $100 um, million in the future. So this is a good sign that the Russo brothers are bringing this film here in October. It shows that a lot of future projects may be on the way. Chris, you have the right person and Troy writing on this. For listeners who obviously can't see it, he's got a Marvel tattoo on his oh, right wrist. I forget that's there. <laughs> he does know the Marvel Universe. Any word on whether this will be filmed just in Cleveland, or, or could it be in the suburbs as well? Well, because the commission's gone through the change at the head, Ivan Schwartz is leaving, They're bringing, someone new has come in, uh, they've been a little hush with this. They have not officially given details on this. The word came from sites like Variety and Deadline. It says the Cleveland area, a couple stories say near Cleveland. So I think it's with the opioid crisis, banks, I got to feel like some of this stuff's going to be in the central Cleveland area or at least in the suburbs. Okay. Finally, the Indians tried something different this week, live coverage of a game on YouTube. Unfortunately, the coverage did not thrill some fans. Mark, what happened there? Well, this is a new deal that actually it's between Major League Baseball and YouTube, and I really think we're going to see a lot more of this in the future. The two entities recently struck a deal to air 13 games via YouTube, so listeners will get a little freebie taste of this now. And I believe the Indians-Toronto Blue Jays game this week was the second of the 13. Uh, Mixed mix blessing, and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to overly hammer YouTube for this because they're, they're early out of the gates. On the plus side, they had uh, qualified announcers who, who knew the stuff, who knew baseball and knew the Indians. Uh, Dan Plesak, a former pitcher whose nephew pitches for the Indians, spoke pretty lovingly, actually, about the Indians. Uh, and I'm sure fans like that. 
And in fairness, when ESPN started 40 years ago, they were pretty much of a rough outfit and they had to work through their kinks. Now, on the negative side, uh, this was really served as a giant heavy-handed commercial for YouTube, which I thought was was ridiculous. Jackie Redman, the, the on-field announcer, did an, an interview, if you can call it that, with Francisco Lindor, and she basically gushed her way through it, and it was, it was pretty bad. Worse was bringing on Lewis... Uh, Hilsentiger, who created a uh, Unbox Therapy. It's a YouTube uh, technology, a piece of technology. They not only did a pregame interview with him, they w- went on and on and on in the booth and the, throughout the entire bottom of the second inning. This was just a giant commercial for YouTube. Uh, and I think at times the sound quality was a little rough. But I'm not counting them out. Uh, as as leagues, basically as contracts, TV contracts come up with various sports leagues and with streaming services basically branching out more and more, we're going to see more deals like this. And I don't think this is going away. Well, and look, we're, we're in an industry where we're constantly experimenting you gotta tip your hat to trying something different and learning from it and trying to get better fans were a little hypercritical i did see one say well this is way better than the first one so they're they're improving Um, i did have one person contact me and tell me that he was at a bar and the people at the bar who were putting the tvs on apparently didn't see our stories about this early on because everybody was confused as to why the indians game wasn't on sports time ohio (laughs) All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks to Kristen, Yachty, Mark, Troy, and all the others who joined the conversation. This week in the CLE is published most Thursday evenings. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode. We'll be back next week.